0: verse there, it's a petition that the disciples of Jesus make of him, a request, and I feel that perhaps there would be those of us this morning who would have that same desire, make the same request of the Lord. Luke chapter 17, verse 5. and the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Three simple words of petition to the Lord Jesus, as the apostles said to Jesus, increase our faith. I believe that this was the uppermost thought in Jesus' mind through the several years that he spent with these 12 men. I believe that the experiences that developed as they walked with Jesus were designed to that specific end, that they would grow in a knowledge of him, and that faith might increase and develop in their hearts, and upon whose shoulders would rest really the leadership of evangelization and the the leadership of the new church upon which the Holy Spirit was going to descend on the day of Pentecost. Jesus, I believe, was investing himself in these men, selected after much prayer, chosen from among those in Galilee to follow him and be his disciples and his students. And I believe it's important that they had recognition of their need, that one overriding, all-encompassing need that every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ has, and that is faith. Back in the book of Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, there is a statement made that is repeated. It says, for the just shall live by faith. That seems to be the theme of scripture. The just shall live by faith. That's repeated again in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews. In the book of Romans, the emphasis is on the just and justification. The book of Romans is written like a court of law, the attorneys and the judge and so forth. And so the emphasis is on the word just. In Galatians, the emphasis is on the word live. The just shall live by faith. It's no longer I that lives, but it is Christ that lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In the book of Hebrews, the emphasis is on the word faith. And you'll read in the 11th chapter of that book, the 6th verse, that without faith it is impossible to please the Lord. For him that cometh to God must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When you read through that chapter, there are individuals that are named and the faith that they demonstrated in every situation, in every culture, through every different personality and problem, faith was the answer for their life. And so I believe that it is that that single most important ingredient between us and God, that we come to him knowing that he exists, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so the apostles prayed this prayer, Lord, increase our faith. We talked last Sunday morning about the fact that God's dealing with man was not stereotyped, He does not deal with us, each one, uh, the same. The experience of our new birth, our regeneration, is as unique and varied as as many people are here in this auditorium this morning. God is a very personal God, and the weapons of our warfare are selected specifically for the battles that we face, and God being so creative in his power and his wisdom has a variety that is endless. And so each new battle, God has a brand new strategy, has a brand new source of strength, and a brand new plan of attack. And the weapons of yesterday cannot just be polished up and uh, taken into battle today. God has a different strategy for us this morning, and a different format, a different service than we had last Sunday morning, and it'll be just exactly what we need, amen? The Lord is marvelous in this way. When we get to know how he works, he specifically tailor-makes the day and the strength to match that day, the grace sufficient for that day. And the Lord is marvelous in all of his ways. We learn then that, that the warfare, God specifically left some of those Canaanites in the land to teach the young men how to do battle and how to do war. We discussed the fact that at that particular moment, uh, warfare is not learned in the classroom, but on the battlefield, in the trenches, in the foxholes, eating K-rations, and that we are called upon to endure hardness as a good soldier. I want to submit to you this morning in the same light that faith is also not learned in the classroom. It is not learned through seminars and through seminaries. Faith is learned by experience. Faith is tested in life, everyday life and situations of life that are brought providentially by God and we quote it so often in the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 28 for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God we believe in a sovereign providential God who orders the steps of a good man I do don't you I believe the Bible says it that the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord and he delights in our way and so when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And I'm glad for that. I believe that all things, not just some of the good things that happen to me, but all things work together for good when we love God and are called according to his purpose, being conformed and made conformable under the image of his son. So faith is learned then in the school of experience. And when you trace the pages of the Gospels and you look at the lives of the disciples, you will discover the fact that most of what was happening to these men as they had fellowship with Jesus was that he was teaching them how to have faith. Not so much when he sat down and expounded truth to them, but by those things that they encountered as they walked day by day with Jesus and uh, learned when human wit and human wisdom and human resources were absolutely washed out and were depleted and at their end, and they had to trust in God. You see them as Jesus took them on a retreat and they had been for three days Jesus teaching a multitude of people and after those three days Jesus said I can't send these people away fasting you give them something to eat And they looked at each other in uh, a bit of a panic and said how can we possibly do this Lord seeing that we only have just such a little bit of provision here. And Jesus said, bring it to me. And they brought it to him. He had them sit down in companies of 50, and they became involved with Jesus in the performing of a miracle of the feeding of those 4,000. And they gathered up seven baskets left over. And he said to them, now I want you to go across the, the lake to the other side. And uh, in another chapter where he had fed 5,000 and they gathered up 12 baskets full, he went to the top of the mountain to pray and they were going to across the lake. They got halfway across and a great storm arose. They did everything within their power. They did everything they knew how to do. All of their sailing skills, they lightened the ship, they battened the hatches, they rowed as hard as they could, nothing availed, and they were desperate when Jesus began to come to them in that experience. I'm glad that regardless of how rough the waves and how rough the sea gets, He knows where we are, and he times his visit just right. And they saw him coming. They were afraid, not knowing who it was or why this was happening. And he came on board, spoke to the winds and the waves, and they obeyed him. And again, they looked at each other and said, What manner of man is this that even the elements respond to his command? He was doing more than just demonstrating power. He was teaching them how to believe God. And I submit to you this morning that as, as the, the, the warrior cannot learn the, the full import of the struggle of battle in a classroom, neither can you and I learn and increase in our faith by just theory alone. God orders our uh, mid-semester in our full-term examinations, and they are in the laboratory of experience where our faith can really be tested. He said, don't think it's strange when the fiery trial, which is to try you, comes your way as though some strange thing has happened unto you, but God has ordered the final examination. And although theory is important, and what we learn from the Word is important, it will be tested and proven and developed in our lives by experience. And in the crucible of extreme need, not a pleasant classroom, is it? Not a pleasant laboratory, but that's where it's found. That's where faith is developed. That's where the answer so the disciples' prayer is really brought into our lives, not just a head knowledge of some things that the Scripture has said or living vicariously in someone else's experience with Jesus Christ, which we have done with these disciples, much like watching television and seeing uh, evil Knievel jump over how many buses. You can't learn to ride a motorcycle by by watching him do it. You'll never learn faith by just looking at how these men did it. You'll have to be brought like they were into a place where you count your money and say, what are these among so many? And you look at your own resources and say, there's no way I can meet this. There is absolutely an impossibility staring me in the face, but recognizing too that the God you serve there is no impossibility with. With Jesus, nothing is impossible when we believe. You're in, the, in that boat and you've bailed out until the blisters are sticking out on your hands and you've done everything you know to do. And you look at a sleeping Christ and say, don't you care if we perish? Sure he cared, but what was he teaching? He was teaching them, how to believe. He was teaching them faith. Faith is not learned by seminars. Faith is learned by experience. Save your money and just say each day you get up, Father, I commit my way unto you and I'm going to walk in the steps that you order for me today, in the knowledge that all things are going to work together for good to them who love God, and I love you. And so the experiences that you order for me today are for my good and for your glory, and I am going to learn how to believe. Hallelujah. Not only learn how to fight, but learn how to believe. I believe the church needs to do that. I believe we need to learn how to believe God and how to trust in the Lord. And you'll never do that vicariously. You'll never do that. And I'm sure that testimonies are encouraging. They are uplifting. They, they are beneficial to us. And at certain junctions in our lives, they are necessary to into edify and strengthen us and encourage our faith, but never uh, fail to recognize that that is their value, that is their purpose. They ought to edify and strengthen, but we'll have to learn it on our own. Just you and the teacher, just you and God, and by experience proving him, By experience acknowledging him, letting him direct according to his own purpose, design, and his own method. And they are not conventional methods, just as the warfare is not conventional. But I'm sure he knows our frame. He knows just how to work with us. Doesn't work with any of us the same doesn't call on each one of us to walk the same path. calls us each one to a different path. How many recognize that? The Lord of variety has a different trail for each of us to follow. We encounter different grades, ups and downs, but he's the one doing the leading. If we're open to him and uh, responsive to him, we recognize that factor. We'll talk about that a little bit more, and we need, first of all, I believe, to recognize that faith is an active thing, it's not a passive thing, and we need to apply, apply the principles. We can believe them with our minds, be exposed to them constantly, and still not have grown in faith until they become active and operating within our lives. Suppose I, after the service, had someone come up to me and, and say to me, Would you please pray for me, Pastor? i just come from the doctor, and they informed me that I have an incurable disease, and I had just a short time to live, and would you please pray? And So I would say, Absolutely. I'd be happy to pray. What is your problem? What was the diagnosis? And as you share it with me, I would be able to say to you, I've got a friend in, in Pittsburgh who is in research and development, and they have just discovered a foolproof cure for that specific disease. This is good news, isn't it? And you don't have to die. This man has, has now marketed and, and they have proven that this is the antidote to your problem and if, do you believe that? And sure, you you want to believe that. Sure, I believe that. What's his address? I said, well, you don't need his address. Just believe it. And you say, but, but I, wh- where is he? Where is his office? Where do I get this medicine? I say, well, don't you believe it? Don't you believe I'm telling you the truth? Yeah, I believe it. I reach out and shake your hand and say, well, praise God, you're healed, you're better. All you have to do is believe it. No, I'm sorry. You've got to do more than believe it. You've got to find that doctor, submit yourself to his care and to his his medicine and receive that and let it become active in your life and then the cure takes place. Now, there are a lot of people who have been taught about God, and they believe. The Bible says the devil believes, too. He's not saved. And he trembles. And so if we're going to have faith, it must be active faith. We've got to take the medicine. We've got to ingest it into our system. It's got to be part of us. It's got to do its work in us. The power of it has got to change us. It's got to take care of the problem. So faith is not a passive thing. It's not a theoretical thing that we believe with our head. It is something that becomes active and operative within my life. It's a medicine. It's an antidote for doubt and unbelief that is the natural part of the old nature that needs to be overcome by my experience and my vision with God. Oh, don't try to examine your faith. Just let God do his work. Have a big God. How many serve a big God this morning? A big God. I'm convinced that there's really only two kinds of Christians, those who have a big God and those who have a little God. you're never really going to serve God with victory with a little God. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Hallelujah. My God can't do anything. Is there anything too hard for my God? And I think when we're talking about faith, we've got to keep our eyes in the right place. Don't start examining your faith or it just evaporates. Start looking at your faith and it just disappears. Put your faith in God. The object of your faith is more important than anything else. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith and everything in between. We must keep our eyes fixed on him and not worry about the development of faith. Let him worry about the development of faith. He will develop in us that necessary ingredient. That was what he was concerned about in his disciples. That's still what he's concerned about in his disciples. If we'll keep our eyes on him and follow in his footsteps and follow as he leads us, we won't have to worry about faith developing. He'll see to it. He'll see to it. The experiences that he allows to come will be tailor-made for us and will help us. He involves us in everything that happens and uh, as a portion of the word you probably haven't read for devotions for a while, but it's back in 2 Chronicles. Turn back there. 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter, and the... 12th verse, Israel is in deep trouble here. They're in a bad situation. And uh, they are crying out to God in verse 12. First, rather, 2nd Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 12. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against the great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Quite a secret, isn't it? I don't know what to do, Lord, but I'm just going to keep looking at you. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you. How many are here this morning could identify with Israel and say, and? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do next. The thing you need to do then, keep your eyes on the Lord. In those situations when you don't know what to do next, and you're totally baffled as far as your own understanding, then you just keep your eyes on him. Verse 15, and he said, Hearken ye all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of their great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. That's a good verse. That's worth copying down and pasting up on the refrigerator door. Every time you go to get something out, Read that verse. The battle is not yours, but it's the Lord's. However, look at the next verse. Tomorrow go ye down against them. But Lord, I thought you'd just get done saying, the battle is not mine, it's yours. It is, but he's going to involve us to get the, the job done. That overlaps a bit with last week. Although the battle is the Lord's, we can't overcome in ourselves. God involves us in the victory. Tomorrow go ye down against them. behold, they come up to the, to the cliff. And ye shall find them at the end of the brook, before the wilderness of jail. God always involves us. That's the school of faith. That's where it is developed, right there. In that situation where you're outnumbered with a great multitude, you cry out to God not knowing what to do next, keeping your eyes on the Lord. The Word of God says the battle is mine, it's not yours. You don't have to worry about winning the victory in your own strength, your own understanding, your own skill. The battle is mine, and I'm going to win the victory. So get moving. Get in gear, get the troops together, and go down against them because I have delivered them into your hands. I have delivered them, but it is into your hands. God wants to teach us how to believe. God wants to bring us through that classroom that's on the middle of the Galilean Sea heaving in that little boat. He wants to put us in the classroom out there in the wilderness with 5,000 people and only 200 pennies worth of bread. And we say, God, how can it be? I don't know what to do, but I have my eyes on you. Hallelujah. And we become a part of the miracle. And when we come through the other side, he has... Taking us through one more course of teaching us how to believe. Showing us how to trust. Put our confidence, put our faith, our assurance in God. And the little battles prepare us for the bigger battles. Isn't that encouraging? We will never outgrow our need for God no matter how long you've been saved look at David's life watching the sheep out there in the field and a bear came the Spirit of God came upon him he slew the bear wasn't long until later on in his experience a lion came the Spirit of God He equipped him and enabled him to rip the lion apart as though it were just a small animal. And it was coming a day down the road that he was going to face a 10-foot tall, well-equipped giant that had been a warrior from his childhood. Hallelujah. All those small battles have been only preparation. Kindergarten so that when you got to junior high, you would be prepared. Isn't that the way he teaches us? Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. God causes us to grow each day, each experience, as it develops faith in our hearts. Small battles prepare us for the bigger battles. We need to see God this morning as a sovereign king that means he sits on the throne we'd like to be able to sing you're my Lord you are Lord you've risen from the dead and you are Lord but a king being sovereign is able to do his own will we are subject unto him and as the potter with the clay, he is able, according to his own will, to fashion it as he sees fit. You really believe that? I believe that's where much of the discouragement and disappointments in faith come is when we do not conceive of the fact that God is sovereign. And if we don't see him in that light, we will be confused and wonder, God, why isn't it with me like it is with my brother? Well, you see, God has a different purpose for you than he does for your brother. If he had the same exact purpose for us all, then he would perhaps lead us all through the same path, but he doesn't. I was reading just the other day for devotion in 1 Kings chapter 14, and uh, it was concerning a blind prophet by the name of Ahijah. If you want to turn back there, I think it would be well. 1 Kings 14, the fourth verse describes him a little bit. First of all, Jeroboam was the king. He hadn't really been serving God. He had established areas of compromise and idolatry for Israel, and they had really backslidden. He hadn't been inquiring of God's prophet for quite a number of years. It had been this prophet, though, that had said to him, God has given you the kingdom and and had spoken words of prophecy to him as he assumed the throne. But that's about the last time he really felt the need to hear anything from the Lord until his child was sick, the heir apparent to the throne. And so he said to his wife, I really feel kind of embarrassed to go and talk to that preacher. He may prophesy some hard thing to me that I... Don't want to hear because I've really neglected the relationship. And so he said, Honey, would you mind going and inquiring of him whether the child shall live or die? And so, not wanting, to, not wanting him to know who she was, she disguised herself. And she took off whatever robes a queen might wear and she put on a house dress. She took a basket and put some groceries inside. There's some honey and some crackers and some other things. As though she had just come back from the market. And she was going to deceive this man into thinking she was somebody else. And the Bible says that she did. She deceived everybody else. No one knew who she was. Verse 4, if you have your Bible open in Jehorah, Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and sent to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were set by reason of his age. And the Lord spoke to him and said, there's a a woman coming, the wife of Jeroboam. And she in her disguise came to the front door about to ring the doorbell. And the prophet said, come on in, thou wife of Jeroboam. I have been waiting for you, and I have a message from God for you. Isn't God terrific? You can't fool God. You can't fool God. God, be not deceived. God is not mocked. He knows who we are. We can put on any disguise we want to, but He knows us. Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. I have been waiting for you, and I have a message of heavy tidings to give you word of knowledge generally spoken to uncover a spiritual disease Nathan said to David thou art the man Peter said to Ananias and Sapphire, take off the charade you're not you're not Barnabas you're not like those who have given all you have come under that pretense but come in thou wife of Jeroboam I know who you are We can put on masks and pretend we are someone we are not, but God knows who we really are and has a word for us. Jesus said to the woman at the well, Sure, you're not married. You've been married five times, and the man you're living with is not your husband. He knows us, doesn't he? He knows us. And uh, this prophet of God was blind, but he could see with eyes that you and I don't have unless God gives us sight. When I read that, I thought about Moses. Moses has been held up to us as an example for every believer. This is the way, if you have real faith, this is the way God will operate in your life. How many know the record of Moses at the end of his life? 120-some years old? The Bible says in Deuteronomy that uh, his eyes waxed not dim, neither was his natural strength abated. Tremendous. And if you really are serving God, if you're really trusting God, church, You're going to live to 120, and your eyes are going to be 20-20, and your natural force is not going to abate because that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many have ever heard that doctrine? No one. Good for you. One, two honest souls here. I'm telling you something this morning I hope you hear. Moses is not held up to us as an example of the way it is for all of us. Ahijah was as much a prophet of the Lord as Moses was. He was hearing from God and serving God with with truth and with power, but his eyes waxed dim and he could not see. does not mean that he had less knowledge of God or less faith in God or that he was a less instrument of God. But it meant that God worked one way with Moses and another way with Ahijah and another way with me. God is sovereign. And so we must develop a faith in a sovereign God that recognizes that he is free to do anything he wants with me because he paid for me with his blood. I am bought with the price, not corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am his to command. Let's look at Elijah and Elisha. Man of faith and power called the nation of Israel together and said, If the Lord be God, then let's serve him, but if Baal is God, serve him. And we're going to have a contest here in Mount Carmel. And you recognize that he prayed and God sent fire down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice. And the the record of his mighty deeds that he did is really encouraging. He established five Bible colleges. Sons of the prophets. One of his protégés was Elisha. And toward the end of his days, he said to him, Elisha, what one thing, if you could have one thing you desired, what would you want from me or from God? You know the response. He said, teacher, if I could have one thing that, that you could give me, I would want a double portion of the same spirit I've seen manifest in your life. He said, you've asked for a hard thing? but if you will stick around and keep your vision clear, keep your eyes where they, where they should be, it'll come. And so as they crossed the Jordan, he saw his master take his mantle from across his shoulders and reach down and smite the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And that waters parted, and they walked across to the other side. When they got to the other side, the river closed. When you read the record of how Elijah left this world, one of the two men of Scripture who did not die, the Bible says, as those two men stood there, that the chariots of the Lord, the horsemen and the chariots of Israel, came down and separated the two of them, and Elijah was caught up into heaven without seeing death in a whirlwind. A tremendous man of faith and power raptured in the sight of Elisha wonderful what specific request that Elisha prayed became his he lifted that mantle as it floated down out of the sky and he picked it up went back to the same river used the same words and smote that water and they parted and he went across if you read the record Exactly twice as many miracles are recorded in Elisha's ministry as are recorded in Elijah's ministry. He raised the dead. The Shunammite's son had the the water that was polluted and the stew that was poisoned and the record of the miracles that he performed were twice as many. Surely, if God's going to be fair, here's a man of twice the power of Elijah. He must have been raptured. Surely the whirlwinds picked him up and carried him off to heaven. Anybody know how Elisha died? Jeffrey. Rose from the dead. Okay, it's just a couple pages from where you've been to 2 Kings, chapter 13. 2 Kings, the 13th chapter. Fourteenth verse now surely Elisha by this point has run out of faith or he just didn't have as much knowledge as Elijah had and if he had just had a little more knowledge this would not have happened to him I don't believe that I believe that there's an awful lot of weight and guilt, and burden, and unnecessary grief laid on the heads of God's people when they don't understand the sovereignty of God. He does not deal with us each one the same. You may not live 120 years and have 20-20 vision. You may be serving God like Ahijah and living behind closed doors in total darkness and be in the perfect will of God. I believe that Ahijah was. And when you look at 2 Kings, the 13th chapter, verse 14, and Elisha was fallen sick of the sickness wherewith he died. And you see, I don't believe that's against our constitution and bylaws. I don't consider that to be defeat. I consider that to be victory. I don't, I, it's not against my religion to die because my Bible tells me it's appointed unto man once to die. And the apostle who got excited about it said, for me to live is Christ, but for me to die is gain. He said, I am really torn between two things here. He said, I I want to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but I, I realize that there's something inside me that says, you've got to stay and do the work God has called you to do absent from the body he said is to be at home with the Lord and I'll lay aside this tabernacle that groans and waits for the day of its redemption and hallelujah that day will come when this mortal will put on immortality you see I don't believe that God has failed or your faith has failed or something else has failed when he wants to promote you into the presence of God and it's not against my religion to die I want you to know something. Should Jesus tarry, you're going to die. They're going to have a funeral service for you. All of the people in the Word died. Not against my religion to die. Jesus died at 33, and he said, it's finished. What was finished? All that the Father had given him to do. You hear what I'm saying? He's the Lord. I'm his property. John the Baptist was finished at age 30. He was the voice of preparing the way of the Lord. He knew it. He said, he's got to increase, but I've got to decrease. That meant from top of the list down to zero. Didn't mean that he lost his faith. Didn't mean that he didn't have enough knowledge. It meant that it was finished. Hear what I'm saying this morning, and don't live under condemnation, unnecessary weight and guilt. God is a sovereign God and he will teach us faith if we will walk in the precepts of his word, the principles of his word, keeping our eyes upon Jesus. And it may be 33, 43, 53, or 103 until you finish the work that he has given you to do. The man who prayed to stay longer Got 15 years added to his life, but it would have been much better had he gone when he should have gone. He opened the treasures to the eyes of the Babylonians, bore a son that was the worst backslidden leader, led the nation of Israel down the drain. The record of his life was clean until that point and God would have been glorified through him and his record would be much different. You see, we can insist that God give us quail and he'll give it to us until it comes out our nose. Now we can be satisfied with his provision, with his manner, or we can say, God, I must have, I must have, I must have, and he'll let you have And send leanness to our soul give us what we insist to our own hurt and to our own leanness you see God's purpose for Elisha was totally different than it was for Elijah it was totally different God's purpose for you is totally different than it is for me and instead of questioning why why me why this why then God, I'm yours. I'm yours. You command. And our faith has got to reach the point where it encompasses sovereignty. It says, God, I know you're the Lord. I know you're the Lord. And I recognize you as being able and I want you to perform your will. I'm persuaded that's exactly what he was talking to his disciple Peter about after the resurrection. And he said to him, Peter, do you love me? And then he began to share with him some, some information. And one final verse of scripture before I close. In John 21, I want you to see this. Although you've read it often before, John twenty one eighteen He's talking to Peter Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young. Thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. When thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee where thou wouldest not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. Now, I know that there are some who that would, they just can't understand how that can be. But i believe that we can glorify god whether in life or in death how many believe that you can glorify god in life so whether we live or we die we're the lords isn't that what the bible says so that whether we live or we die we are the lords and he said peter i'm going to give you a prophecy i'm going to give you a little insight into what you have to look forward to This is the way it was for you when you were young. This is the way it's going to be for you when you're old. And he spoke that signifying what death he should die to glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said, follow me. But Peter had been vaccinated with the same shot some of us are getting today. And he looked over his shoulder and said, but God, what about this guy? What about John? Is he going to... Is that going to be true for him too? You know what Jesus responded. He said, Peter, mind your own business. If I want to be different with him and let him live until I come back, that's my business. You follow me. That says to me exactly what I've been trying to say to you this morning. God is a sovereign God who does not deal with us uniformly, deals with us uniquely